0: We're starting the the fourth cycle of the book of the Revelation. Uh, The fourth cycle. We've been considering um, the book in terms of its structure as having seven cycles of seven. That's been the the premise of our study, the premise of my dad's work on the book of the Revelation, that we have seven periods of seven going on in the book of the Revelation. So um, Now, the first three sevens are relatively easy to see how there's seven there, right? There are seven letters to the seven churches. Um, That's not too difficult to to suss out as a seven. There are seven seals. That's pretty easy um, to to figure out that that's a group of seven. Um, There are seven trumpets. So, so far it's not really been very heavy sledding to see the sevens as they've come to us in the book of the Revelation. Um, And now we're moving on to the fourth uh, series, the fourth cycle Um, and it's a little less obvious to us maybe in looking at it from um, chapter 12 verse 1 is where this cycle starts to 14 verse 5. That really is the the section of the fourth cycle and as we're going to look at these things. So we've seen how they each have their own kind of uh, theme that they go through. We've been arguing that this is like looking at one diamond through different facets or looking at the same thing through different replays. So we're seeing seeing the same story told told again and again from different angles. Um, And so the the first cycle as we went through it, we said that was primarily the the fact that the church and its suffering must remain faithful. Um, That was really the lesson that was being taught in that first cycle, and that was done by way of the seven churches, the different things they faced, the different ways they were faithful. Uh, but that was the message, that the church and its suffering had to remain faithful. Uh, that was the theme that repeated itself. When it came to the seven seals, uh, the, the, the scene shifted a little bit, that to think about the church's suffering as advancing the purposes of God in history. So that looked more not just how do we behave in the midst of our suffering, but taking a more global perspective and seeing how this suffering really is advancing God's purpose through history. Um, and so that's really what the, the seven seals were all about. Uh, the third cycle on the seven trumpets, uh, sorry about that, um, was teaching that the church's suffering in history is less than the suffering of the wicked in history, uh, that although the church suffers and has to remain faithful and that suffering is advancing God's purposes through history, if we were to compare our suffering to that of the world, the suffering in the world is actually far worse than the suffering of the church, that God is working in that way. And so now we come to a fourth cycle that's maybe not so apparent. Maybe it's apparent once you read the handout that's broken it down. But it's not so apparent maybe readily. It's, it's back by Dan's bench, if you didn't get it coming in. Um, so it's, it's not so apparent, obviously coming out the way the seals or the letters or the trumpets are, readily apparent. But because John has now done cycles of seven, what he's done is taught us to think in that way. You know, He's taught us to think, okay, we saw seven letters, then we saw seven seals, then we saw seven trumpets. And so now in the absence of an obvious seven, I think we can conclude one of two things. Either he's decided to do away with the pattern he's been following and go to some new pattern that's not at all discernible to us. Um, Or he's following the same pattern, it's just not as immediately clear. Um, And of course, what we're going to argue is that he's still continuing to follow those sevens. That's what he's kind of trained us to do so far, to think in that way. Um, And he's still teaching us to think in that way as we come to um, John's vision that spans from chapter 12, verse 1 to 14, verse 5. Um, This is the section of John's gospel that really, uh, John's a... vision, uh, that gets into some of the really interesting pictures that we have in Revelation and some of the things that are really difficult to know what to make of. Um, This is the section where we have dragons and we have beasts that rise from the sea and from the land um, and all these kinds of different things that are going on in the book, and you know that most disputed of topics, the mark of the beast—that's six six six—that comes up in this section, um, and so how we how we come to it as um, a seven will help us to understand all the all the different pictures that are going on here. Um, so, in the handout that I that I gave out, that's uh, it's in the back um, by Dan. If Dan, if you could, I don't know if there's a better place to put that so that it's more obvious, but um, there are, there are seven parts to this vision. Um, that the first, the first episode we could say, so I'm going to make the argument that we have seven episodes here. When I say I'm going to make the argument, I'm saying my dad made the argument, and you just have to live with it uh, the way I had to growing up. That's just the way it was. So um, seven episodes that are going on. So we have those seven episodes listed. The woman that we see in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, the red dragon, uh, the two armies, the dragon and the woman, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, and the lamb, and the redeemed. Um, that's, that's how those, those should be. Um, and just as with the other cycles we've seen, this cycle also has a unifying theme, and that is that the church is preserved by God throughout history. Um, the church is preserved by God throughout history. Um, that's really what this, what this whole theme is going to be about. Um, and if we think about a, a book that has seven cycles of seven, um, what does that tell us about the fourth cycle then? Where does that function in the structure of the book? It would be in the middle, right? It's the center um, of what's going on. And so, oftentimes, unlike how we sometimes think of things, that you put the most important thing at the beginning. Um, you know, maybe when you remember taking English in school, you had to have, a, you start your paragraph with a, with a statement, a main sentence that it builds on, right? Uh, that's how we tend to talk. Um, In in a more Hebrew way of thinking, you put the most important part in the middle, the center at which it all drives. Um, That's the middle part. And so this is, in in one sense, the center of the book of the Revelation. This is the center of what John is talking about. This is the the centerpiece for the rest of the book. Um, The first three cycles that have to do with suffering and the last three cycles that will really have to do with final judgment are brought together in this pivotal section of the book, um, where God God unfolds for us that the church is preserved by him throughout history. And so this is an important part of the book to see what God is doing for his people. Um, And this cycle surveys the meaning of the whole history of the church between the first coming of Christ and the second, from the birth of Christ to the glorification of the church in his second coming. Um, this, this, This cycle is going to talk about what that's going to look like. Uh, the, the history of the church in the world and the preservation of God as the church is in the world. Um, and one of the things that we're going to see in, in this particular cycle is how do we characterize the life of the church in this world? Um, how does the fourth cycle teach us to think about it? In many ways, it teaches us to think in terms of a war. It lets us know that the life of the church in this world is one of Warfare. A constant war between the church and the dragon. Um, And that warfare is really the foundation of our existence in this world when it comes to the spiritual forces that are against the people of God. Um, That shouldn't be a surprise to us who've read Paul's letter to the Ephesians and he tells us we're involved in spiritual warfare. Um, And that's the condition the church is meant to think of itself in. The church versus the dragon. That's, That's always been the war. Uh, The people of God versus the seed of the serpent, right? The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That's always been the war. Um, And and it's a war because the the devil and his minions have always been against us, trying to destroy us. Um, And we've always been called to stand against them, to stand with God and against the world. Um, And so that's the warfare that this is teaching us is going to go on between the church and the world. Um, And this warfare is going to continue. That's going to be the condition of the church in this world until the Lord brings peace. Um, Sometimes people think, you know, when when is the church going to be at peace? Because we get a little tired of war. Um, Well, only Jesus' return can bring peace to the church. Um, I was citing a Puritan writer on Sunday to someone who said, you know, "In, in heaven we'll wear robes, but on earth we wear armor. Um, and God's people have to sleep in their armor because the condition of, of life in this world is always one of warfare, uh, warfare with the devil. And so that, that is going to, to characterize the church in this world. Um, we see this in the garden after the fall. That's the first thing that God does is create enmity between uh, the, the seed of the women and the woman and the seed of the serpent. It, it's, it's going to be warfare from then on. He's going to try to crush our heel. We're going to try to crush his head. That's just the way it's going to be in the world until God puts that victory to an end. And so we have to always see that. That's the condition of the church in the world. The warfare between the church and the devil um, and, and those who are in the service of the devil. Um, it's important for us to remember that because the fight is not between God and the devil. Um, that's sometimes how people have put it, as if God is at war with the devil. And I hope we'll see early on in this, that's not, a, that's not much of a war. Right? That war is over pretty quickly. Um, there, and, and in fact, God doesn't even need to weigh into that war. The servants of the Lord are enough in this passage to drive out the devil and his servants. Um, in in the, contest between, the spiritual contest between the servants of God and the servants of the devil, that's not much of a spiritual contest. Right? Michael and his angels are enough against the devil and his host. Um, And we have to think of that. The war is not really between God and the dragon. The dragon can't wage successful war with God. He's not powerful enough. That's the lie the devil likes to put on, that he's sort of a match for the Lord, Um, that he's He's brilliant in power and masquerades as the kingdom of you know the kingdom of all the world are his to to divvy out to whoever he wants. He likes to prowl, to prowl around like that, to strut around like that. But the fact is, it's not true. God is the creator; God, the devil is a creature. Um, he's a creature of power. He's a creature of danger. We'd be foolish to not reckon with him. For the power he has. But when you pick, compare him to us in power, it's a far different thing when you compare him to God in power. Um, and we see that, that encouragement, that the, that the devil cannot wage a successful war against the Almighty. He cannot wage a successful war against the Lamb, uh, that God overcomes him. The devil wages war against the woman, against her offspring, against the holy angels who watch over the church. The devil is combating the servants of the Lord, uh, not the Lord himself. So uh, that's the war, and that's what this section is going to highlight. This is the war that's going on between the church and the devil. And it plays itself out in this section, like we've said, in seven episodes. Um, These seven episodes, even though they're not as clear, they are really significantly um, and clearly delineated as we go along. They're, They're pretty clear. Um, subject matter changes in this vision that illustrate pretty clearly when we've moved on from one thing to the next. Um, and so even though it doesn't say this is the first vision, this is the second vision, um, it does give us some pretty clear subject matter changes and even their literary structure clues us into how these things are moving through. Um, that was the, the second thing I wrote on your sheet is, not, is, is the same structure but, but shown in how it kind of functions in literature, the Bible likes to do these kind of literary structures that are known as a chiasm. You've probably heard that before. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Um, because you've had a lot of seminarians through here, and seminarians love, love to find chiasms everywhere. Um, even when they don't exist, once you learn that they're there, you try to, you, you try to find a chiasm every, behind every tree. Um, but, you know, it's just a simple literary form that that the central thing is here— and then you have usually an A1 and an A2, and they correspond to each other. And you can, these can play out in really long chiasms, or they can be very short in um, referring one to another. And so I kind of put it in chiastic form in your handout, where you can see A corresponds to A prime. So you have the church in labor, and then you have the church in glory. Or in B, you have the dragon who seeks to destroy the true prophet. And B prime, you have the beast from the earth who's a false prophet. So prophet and prophet. in C you have the war in heaven. In C Prime you have the war on earth, and then in the middle you have the dragon pursuing the church on earth. And that clues you that that's the central, the central theme. Um, it's it's the warfare. It's the pursuit of the dragon of the church and God's preservation of the church against the devil's assaults. Um, and so that's so both in terms of subject matter and terms of literary structure, we're told how to think about how these how this passage corresponds, how it holds together, and John helps to communicate the message of this passage through that, Um, helps to show what is at the center of this central figure in the book of the Revelation so that we can understand it. And so it's always good for us to kind of know what the structure is before we go in um, so that we can then try to see how is this all corresponding in the things that we read. Because as I said, some of the things that we read in this passage are pretty, pretty fantastic. And if we don't have some idea of what the structure is, it can be easy to get lost. And so if you look with me at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2, and as the first episode or scene vision that we see in this passage. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, remember this is, God has said this is a blessing to me to read it to you, and it's a blessing for you to hear it. Um, This is his word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and in the agony of giving birth. So here's the first sign that comes. It's a sign in heaven, and it's a great sign, right? glorious in appearance um, is this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with a crown of 12 stars, um, she's pictured for us as a queen of heaven um, who is who is pictured for us in this in this passage. And then verse two tells us, not only is she gloriously clothed in heaven, but she's a woman in labor. Um, she's about to give birth to a child um, and that's an important scene from heaven that we're introduced to in chapter 12 verse one, this great sign in heaven. Um, And so, of course, we want to answer the question, who is this woman? Um, Well, my handout has already ruined it because I said the woman is the church. Um, That's who this is a picture of um, here. Sometimes when you're in Roman Catholic churches and you see pictures of Mary, she'll look like this. Um, She's pictured as having uh, clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, and crowned with 12 stars. Um, And that's because of the belief that she's the queen of heaven. Um, and what John is saying here is this is not Mary, this is not the Virgin Mary, um, but this is to be thought of as the church. Um, this is not, a, this is not an, a real individual, this is an individual that symbolizes the church as a whole. Uh, we can think of those two witnesses who, who symbolize the church's message in the world. Um, they, they, you know, sometimes people made the mistake of who are the two witnesses well it wasn't as important to know who the two witnesses are as much as it is to say who the two witnesses represent and just as they represented the witness of the church in history so here this woman represents the church um, she is the bride of Christ it's from this community that comes one who is born to redeem his people um, this is the church as a whole and Mary is part of that church as a whole um, you know, we don't want to do the, th- the thing we often do in Protestant circles is because Mary is so improperly exalted that we, we think we'll humble her. Um, well, we should, you know, exalt Mary properly, as the Bible tells us to, as someone who is a faithful servant of the Lord and who does represent the faithful church. Um, just as any faithful Christian represents what uh, faithful church members should be like. But from the life of this covenant community is born someone very important born someone who is going to redeem his people. And that leads us then into the second episode. So we have a great sign in heaven, which is this this queen of heaven uh, who who is giving birth. Um, And we have another sign. Another sign you'll notice that's in heaven. And we read about that second episode in uh, chapter 12, verses three through six. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns "'and on his head seven diadems. "'His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven "'and cast them to earth, "'and the dragon stood before the woman "'who was about to give birth, "'so that when she bore her child, "'he might devour it. "'She gave birth to a male child, "'one who is to rule all the nations "'with a rod of iron, "'but her child was caught up to God "'and to his throne. "'And the woman fled into the wilderness "'where she has a place prepared by God.' In which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. Okay, so here's another great sign in heaven. So one is the queen of heaven, and one who is anything but, right? A great red dragon, which we might also read there could be fiery, um, and who is the great red dragon? Well, that's a little easier for us, right? Um, that that's kind of first day stuff. We know who this who this great red dragon is. It's the devil. He's the one who's waiting to devour um, and destroy the church. He's always hated God's people. He's always been trying to destroy the seed of the woman. And we have a picture of sort of the the footing of the devil throughout history, always trying to be there to snap up the promised seed of the woman. Um, And there are times in the history of the church that he gets very close Um. Can you think of a time where the devil is close to eradicating the seed of promise? Joash. Joash. Okay, why did he say Joash? Right, yeah, he's, he's one of the last of the line of David left, right? And he's eight years old. Um, and it seems like things are hanging by a thread. Um, of course, that's always from a human perspective. God's plans never hang from a thread, Um, and even if they are a thread, they're a thread of steel. They can't be broken. Um, But it's looked at times like the church has been in real trouble, and it's because the devil's been trying to destroy things. Athaliah was going around trying to kill all the descendants of David. Um, And so the devil has done that, tried to devour um, that child. And what's interesting here is the picture of the devil that we're given. Um, You know, It's another sort of strange picture with heads and horns and crowns. Um, but we've, we've been introduced to these kinds of figures before in the book of the Revelation, and that helps to inform us what this strange picture is all about. Because remember, when we, when we were introduced to the lamb who looked like he'd been slain, um, he was described in somewhat similar terms. Um, he had one head and seven eyes and seven horns. And we said the seven eyes pointed to the knowledge of the lamb and the seven horns pointed to his power. And so now this beast arises, You know, this, this dragon shows up and he's got seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Um, now we know that the devil likes to be a liar and a disguiser and what he's doing here is mimicking the Lord. He likes to masquerade as an angel of light. He likes to be thought of as a rival power to God. Um, right? He's the prince of this world. That's how he likes to style himself. And so here we have, I think, the first of many pictures in this section that will serve as a mimicking or an aping or a mocking of what God is and does. So God has one, the lamb has one head and seven horns and seven eyes. Well, the beast has seven heads and seven diadems and ten horns He's trying to say, I've got power too. Um, I've got power. I've got authority. He's he's wearing diadems on his head. This is the first time we've seen something like this in the book of the Revelation. Um, Because when other people in the book of the Revelation have been crowned, that's a different word for crowns and it means a different thing. It means the victory crown, the victory laurel that's been given to the triumphant, the way they used to give them to people who competed in the Olympics and overcome. Um, they would give them a crown of laurel on their head, right? uh, branches that would show that you're a victor, you've overcome. Those are the crowns that have been referred to uh, so far in, in Revelation. These are diadems. These are different kinds of crowns. These are crowns that try to speak of power. These are crowns that rulers wear. Uh, that kings wear uh, this is this is again the the dragon trying to look supreme in power, supreme in rule and in might he 's got seven heads and he wears seven crowns showing just how great his power is, and where the lamb has seven horns, he has ten horns um, see, he's trying to he 's trying to ape the power of god he 's trying to pretend that he 's like God um, and that'll that 'll continue to come up throughout this throughout this section, um, it's important at this point to notice that he doesn't have the Lamb's eyes. The devil can pretend to be a lot of things. Um, He can pretend to be like God. He can masquerade as if he's powerful, but he doesn't actually have the true power that God has. What, What did the Lamb's seven eyes remind us of? The seven spirits who've gone out into the earth. That the Lamb has knowledge. And one of the things that we see about the dragon, he might have all the appearances of power and glory, but he doesn't have the knowledge. He might have a lot of things, but he doesn't have the spirit of God that's abroad in the world. Um, it's It's a show of power, but it's not the same kind of thing as true power. Um, I think that's, that's why when the white rider appears in Revelation 19, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when the white rider appears in Revelation 19, he's outdoing the devil by appearing with many diadems. You know, the, the devil tried to appear with seven crowns. Look how mighty I am. But when the real might appears, he's crowned with many crowns. Um, he's the true power. Right? There's a difference between being Superman and putting on a Superman costume. Um, Superman can fly, Superman can resist bullets. If you're just wearing a Superman costume, you're not going to fly very far and people are going to shoot you and you're going to die. There's a difference between looking like the real thing and being the real thing, right? Um, You can go down the Padre store and buy a Manny Machado jersey, but no one's paying you $300 million. Um, There's a difference, right? There's a difference between being the thing and looking like the thing. The devil's trying to look like the real thing. He's trying to masquerade in the world as being the one who has that kind of power, and he stands waiting to destroy the child that the woman is about to bear. That's his whole purpose: is to try to gobble up that child. Um, but, but beautifully, before he can do that, you know, as he's standing there in a sense waiting to pounce, and it looks like from all outward opinion appearances, it would be a very dire situation, right? This woman who's about to give birth and the dragon that's sitting there waiting to devour the child and there doesn't seem to be anyone else in the picture and anybody looking at that would have seen it as, you know, a horror show about to happen. Um, But just at the right moment, there's intervention. Um, That the child is born and before the devil can scoop up the child, um, he's caught up to heaven. Uh, This child who is the one who is to rule the nation's with a rod of iron, right? This is a, an allusion to Psalm two, the the son that will be appointed by the father to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Um, he's scooped up before he can be consumed by the dragon, caught up to God and to His throne. So the dragon can't get the child, and the woman gets away, right? She goes into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred. And 60 days. Um, so she flees. This is a picture of the preservation of Israel in the wilderness. This is how God described how he intervened for Israel in the wilderness. Exodus 19 verse 4, he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Right, that, that's just a picture of that Uh, from Exodus, an allusion to that going on here. The Lord is the God who preserves, and then the woman runs into the wilderness. right? And and there too, I think that's meant to be an allusion of the church in the wilderness, to think about the wilderness people of God after the Exodus. Um, So there is this event that takes place, and again we have one of these weird periods of time, 1260 days. Um, and we've noticed as we've gone along, haven't we, that 1260 days often comes out to the same sort of picture, whether it's 1260 days or 42 months or times time and half a time, which ends up being three and a half years. Um, these, are, these are different ways of saying the same period of time. So we keep seeing this period of time over and over again. Um, this time it's representing the whole history of the church on earth, right? This is the period of time when the woman is in the wilderness. Um, this is the period of time of warfare. Um, this is how it's to be thought of by the people of God. Um, we'll see that the beasts are around for 42 months. That, that, that number keeps coming up um, as, as a standing point. It's a time that is a significant period of time, but short, still short. Um, it, it's not a long, long time. Right? Three and a half years... It's, it's a certain amount of time, but it's not a long, long time. Um, you were in high school for longer than that. Um, you know, there, there are things, that's a significant amount of time, but it's not a long, long time. Um, and that's how we're meant to think of this whole history. Um, we're also told that these events take place in heaven. Right, and you know, some people have been confused by that. What is the devil doing in heaven? thought heaven was a place where the devil isn't. Um, But remember, again, the symbolism of revelation, things that take place in heaven are spiritual things. There's a spiritual significance to what's going on here. Um, That's what's being communicated to us, um, that these things represent that age-old conflict, that spiritual conflict between um, the devil and the church that age-old conflict that's been going on, the background that, that, that it is going on with our experiences in this world, that there's a spiritual conflict that's going on above this world. Um, I always think of Daniel when he's seeing all those visions in the last half of the book of Daniel. Um, he's seeing, he's getting a window into the spiritual warfare that's going on between heavenly beings. Um, He gets a window into Michael and what he's doing and and why it's important that Michael shows up at certain places and certain times, and it's strange to us to read, it's strange to Daniel to see, Um, and I'm always comforted when Daniel sees these visions and then says, I'm a little sick and I need to lay down. I don't know what to make of any of this, Um, because that's how we feel sometimes reading Last part of Daniel. This is kind of making me sick. Can I lay down now? Um, you know, Because there's this whole world of spiritual conflict that's going on. And we get windows into it every now and again. That, this is, that there's a whole other battle that's happening in spiritual realms and spiritual powers. Um, the age-old conflict between the servants of God and the servants of the devil um, that, that's been going on for a long time. Um, but it's an encouraging reminder in, as this vision goes on that the devil has no abiding place in heaven. Because even though this scene opens with a first sign in heaven, which is the woman, and then a second sign in heaven, which is the dragon, we have a wonderful third vision that happens of what is the consequence of the warfare that goes on in heaven. Um, So there's a war presented to us, but what happens in this war? We'll look at chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea! For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Um, so there is a picture of war in heaven, but it's a war that goes well for the good guys. right? The devil tries to make war in heaven, but no place is found for him in heaven. And when he engages with the servants of the Lord, he is thrown down. Um, it doesn't end in, in conflict in heaven. The conflict in heaven is ended. There's no place found for him. He's thrown down with his servants. There's victory over the devil. And the one who reigns in heaven reigns. The child who came to rule, rules. And the one who came to contest his rule is thrown down. um, And permanently thrown down. It's a defeat of the evil one in the spiritual realm that's pictured here. Um, it's 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 a wholesale defeat. He tries to wage war, he can't wage war, and he's thrown down. Um, He's thrown down, his servants are thrown down uh, by Michael and his angels in the service of the Lord. So there's this great spiritual conflict in heaven, but it ends. It ends with a decisive victory, right? You, You can't miss that reading through. There's a lot of other things you could ask questions about, you know, what's going on here, but you can't miss the main the main thing, right? There's no, there's no real way to bury the lead here. The lead is the devil tried to oppose the Lord and his forces and they have dominated over them and thrown them out of heaven. There's now no place for them. They've been cast down and everybody who's in heaven can rejoice in the victory. Right, it's a celebration in heaven of a decisive victory and that should be an encouragement to the people of God uh, that Michael has led the angels of the Lord in in a successful defense of heaven in God's name by the power of Christ. Um, that's what Daniel had seen in Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Um, again, we don't understand exactly how angels work um, and everything about angels. We know that they're, men- they're messengers. That's what their name means. It just means Messenger. Um, and we know that they're sent to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. Uh, but beyond that, we don't know names of many of them. Um, we don't know exactly what all of them do or why they do what they do in the service of the Lord. Uh, but we, we are given insight into Michael is the great prince of the church who fights for us. Um, he's one of our protectors. That's, that's what we're told in Scripture. What all that means, uh, you know, we don't exactly understand that but it's, it's good to know, right? Um, it's, gr- it's good to know that you've got powerful people on your side always. Um, so even if that's all we understand from this passage, it's good to know. Um, there are powerful people helping us in the service of the Lord. But the dragon, far from being still in his power, has been significantly weakened um, and limited by his defeat, right? He's been thrown down. Um, that means the place he once had some, you know, in a, in a picture, you know, again, this is symbolism, right? So we don't want to take this in a literal fashion exactly, but, but there, the picture here is he once had some kind of place in heaven where he was free to go, and he's lost that freedom. He's been, he's been decisively thrown out of that realm, and now there is no place for him. Um, he can't go where he used to go. The picture here is one of limitation, of defeat that significantly weakened what he was previously able to do and what he was previously able to think he could do. Um, He's been cast down. That's a sign of his fundamental defeat. That's how the Lord um, Jesus renders that in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Um, that's, that's That's a heavy fall, isn't it? To fall like lightning from heaven—that falls quick and fast. Um, that's you know that's not a light floating to the ground. Is it? That's a sort of being pounded into the ground. Um, the devil falls like lightning from heaven. That's a decisive defeat. Um, there's a there's a, been a turning point in the warfare that's come with the advent of the Son who is to rule with the rod of iron. Um, that has changed things and changed them radically. Um, maybe I've shared this with you before, but I remember being in seminary, and in seminary you ask dumb questions at times, and uh, a fellow classmate and I were talking, and we were talking about whether the devil thinks he can win. You know, he's so determined to oppose the Lord and his church, and we were saying to ourselves, do you think the devil can win? And I remember we were sort of in the front office of the seminary, and Dr. Hal Jones was walking by to check his mail, and and I remember this kid said, we should ask him. I said, don't, let's not ask him, this." This is a dumb question. Um, I'm embarrassed to ask him, and so he's like, "I'm gonna ask him." And he's he's walking to check his mail, and so he says, "Dr. Jones, can I ask you a question? Do you think does the devil really think he can win?" And with it, he didn't he didn't break stride; he just kind of threw this over his shoulder. But this you know this is the kind of wisdom he always used to drop on us. But he would say he just didn't even stop walking; kept going to his box. And he just looks over and goes, "Did he ever think he could win? Yes. Does he now? No." Because Jesus saw him fall like lightning from heaven. So he quoted this as saying, you know, before that, he thought he had a chance. Before Jesus, he could still live in the illusion of, when he comes, I'll get him. You know, when he went after him in the desert, he could still live in that illusion of, when he comes, I'll get him. Or he could pursue the cross and say, I'm gonna get him. I've still got a chance. But now that he's overcome, it's over. There's no chance anymore. The devil can't come to the Lord in the wil- like he did in the wilderness. He wouldn't dare now. He's too high, he's too lifted up. The devil's been too thrown down and too weakened. The, the decisive blow has already been struck. It's, it's just the mopping up details that need to happen. I read recently a book on the, the Ardennes, the, the Battle of the Bulge offensive that happened after D-Day when the Germans had a counter offensive against the Allied invasion, but everybody sort of knows that once the Allies land and have a foothold in Europe, it's over. Once, once they're established, you've lost the war. It's just a matter of time. Um, but, but that defeat on D-Day, you lost. You knew you were dead, you just hadn't been fully killed yet. Um, and and that, that's sort of the story of the cross of Christ. The devil's dead. He's, he's been defeated. Now we're just in the mopping up stage. It's just a matter of time now. Um, he's been thrown down. That's a significant defeat. That's what's being pictured for us here. Um, the, 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 the big stroke has fallen. Heaven can rejoice. And that's what we see. The accuser of our brethren has been, has been thrown down. That's over. There's no place for the accuser anymore. Um, It's a great cause of rejoicing in heaven because the the defeat is decisive, but he remains a great deceiver on earth. He's been thrown out. He has no place in heaven. He's been thrown down on the earth. He's decisively defeated, um, but that doesn't mean that he's without any power. Right On earth, his power remains for a short time, and his wrath against the godly is great. And in part, it's so great because he knows that his time is short. Um, He knows he's defeated, and that makes him more angry. Um, You can think of it like a wounded animal. Sometimes they're the most dangerous kind of animals to go near. Um, Even if they're hurt, even if they're dying, you don't want to be around them. Um, His time is short. That's some time, but that's not a lot of time. Um, and he knows now he's running out of time. Uh, he knows now that he can't be victorious, but he's still evil, and so he's determined to do as much harm as he can do. Um, that, that also is the mark of the wickedness of the devil. That even when he knows he can't do supreme harm, he still is happy to do whatever harm he can do. He's always been a killer. He's always been a murderer and a liar. Um, and he'll do as much harm as he can do. Um, C.S. Lewis's book on Paralandra. I remember when the, when the devil figure is after the one guy and really can't totally get after him. He just, he just takes to being a pain in the neck. You know, Dr. Ransom has sort of already had the confrontation with him and he can't, the devil can't overcome this figure. And so all he does is sort of sit there and say the guy's name over and over again. Just sits there and goes, Ransom, Ransom. And he tries to ignore him, you know. And then after a while he says, What? There's nothing. Ransom, ransom. You know, it's just like, okay, now you've had your fight. Now you're just, now that's just pure meanness, right? We all know how annoying that is. And it's the, sort of the picture that C.S. Lewis paints. He can't be victorious. Now he's just being annoying. Now he's just working whatever wickedness he can work, uh, doing whatever harm he can do now that his time is short. But he's defeated in the spiritual realm. He's in his death throes. And God's people need to know that in the world. He's he's roaring around like a prowling lion. He's still looking for people to devour. Um, But now you can resist him and he'll flee from you. Um, He's not what he used to be. Um, He's been decisively defeated. Um, But that doesn't mean that he still doesn't work evil. And that's what we see as we move on into the fourth vision. uh, The dragon's pursuit of the woman on earth. We read about that in verses 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water out like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who had kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Um, Again, a terrible picture of his wrath against the church, a wonderful picture of God's preservation of the church, um, that that God intervenes directly for the church at times, that the, the earth intervenes for the church, Um, and opening up to swallow the water. It's a a wonderful picture of uh, heaven and earth contributing to the protection of the church in the wilderness. Um, Again, in the wilderness, you know, an allusion to Israel in the wilderness, or Jesus in the wilderness. Um, The place of suffering and temptation for the church between the freedom of the exodus and coming home. That's what the wilderness always represents, that time of sojourning um, before, before coming home. Um, that's what it is here. She's in the wilderness again for a time, times and half a time. Uh, the same amount of time for the two witnesses in Revelation eleven. So that 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 way of phrasing it is re- reminiscent of Revelation eleven. Uh, like the witnesses were, the woman is subject to the dragon's wrath and his efforts to destroy her. Um, and like the witnesses, despite all of their efforts to destroy her, all the dragons efforts to destroy her, she's ultimately preserved. Um and so she 's preserved, and so the warfare continues against the rest of her offspring. Um, if you can 't get to Jesus and you can't get you can 't kill Jesus and you can 't kill his church, then you try killing his brothers and sisters. Um, the devil can 't kill the lord it can 't kill his church because the gates of hell will prevail against it, but he goes after individuals, the offspring of the church. so if the woman is the whole church. The church as a whole is always going to be preserved by God throughout history. Um, God God made that promise. He's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You can't destroy the church. Um, But her offspring are Christians as individuals. So the devil said, I want to destroy the Lord of the church. He can't. I want to destroy the church. He can't. I'm going to go after the people of the church. I'm going to go after the individuals. I'm going to go after them. Um, And they're going to experience great suffering and even martyrdom because of the dragon. And this is a helpful way for us to think of these things, right? The church as a whole will never perish from the earth. But that doesn't mean that people in the church don't from time to time experience suffering, experience martyrdom, experience persecution for the sake of the name. That doesn't mean things have gone wrong. Right? Again, this is Calvinist comfort. Cheer up, things could be worse. But when, when the church is at war, you're not surprised that you're at war. Right? If, if you're at war in Afghanistan and you find that someone's shooting at you, it's not a pleasant place to be, but you're not surprised it's happening. I don't think you know, Marines come back to their camp. Because they were shooting at us out there. You know? No, they, they knew that when they went out there. They knew they were in a war zone. They knew there was a time where you pass the safety and you're into the danger. And the church is in a danger zone in this world. We're in a combat zone. Um, We're in a forward area as the church. Um, We are in a dangerous place. And there are some people um, that God has given to uh, sustain through the danger. um, And there are some people who give their lives in the midst of the danger. But that doesn't mean something's gone wrong for the church. It just is the nature of the warfare we face in this world. Um, that, that sometimes people like Jeremiah are, pers- are, pers- are uh, preserved through the struggles they face and other people who are ministering at the same time are put to death. Um, it, it's not that the church is failing or that, that the plan has gone wrong, but there is an active enemy who has always been a killer, always been a murderer. And that's always been his goal. And sometimes individuals in the church will suffer but the church will be preserved, and even though they might be conquered for a time, they will overcome, um, that they overcome even in their dying. Um, and so we need to remember that, that this, is, this is not a sign the church has gone wrong. This is what God has promised us will be true of the church in this world. Um, that's what Jesus said. They hated me, they'll hate you. The servant is not greater than the master. Um, that's going to be the condition of the church in the world. Um, But this is good to remember that this is what stands at the functional center of the book of the Revelation. Um, What what stands at the functional center of the book is this vision. This particular vision of the devil trying to get the church and the church continuing to be preserved. Um, This is the central section of the cycle and this is the central vision of the central cycle. Uh, this, this is, this is the, the thematic core of the book of the Revelation. The devil will try, but he'll fail. And the Lord will preserve his church. Um, and so that's, that's wonderful to know, that blessedness comes from knowing that although Christians are engaged in an intense struggle in this life against the evil one, God will certainly preserve his people. Um, we can say with Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is, is God is protecting his church, then who can conquer his church? So um, that leads us then to the fifth vision. So this is the nature of the warfare is that uh, the devil is after um, those who are the offspring of the woman, the church, individuals in the church who keep the commandments of God, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And it ends with him standing on the sand of the sea. And then what do we read in chapter 13, verse 1? And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. And everyone, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Um, so here we have the, the, the arising of the first of two beasts that we'll see um, in this section. The fifth and sixth visions introduce two beasts, one that arises from the sea and one that arises from the earth. Um, of course, the beasts of the Revelation have led to any amount of speculation on uh, who these beasts might be, um, if they're people in history, if they're particular institutions in history. Um, hopefully, as we've continue to approach the book we don't need to figure out who who is the beast or what institution is the beast represent Um, I don't think he's the fed or anything like that Um, it's representing it's an emissary of the dragon representing the dragon in the world seeking to destroy the offspring of the woman and just as the dragon's time is short so the beast's time is short Uh, that the woman is being preserved for the exact amount of time that the beast has authority um, and so we can think of that. And what, what these beasts do with the dragon is form a kind of unholy trinity. Um, just as we saw the dragon kind of trying to mimic, in some ways, the lamb, uh, we see the beast and the dragon working together to oppose God and his truths. Um, in some ways, the dragon r- represents himself as sovereign. I'm the sovereign. I'm, I'm the one who has power. I'm the one who has authority. And the second and the beast comes, and the first beast seems kind of like a giver of life. Um, he seems kind of like one who has power, right? He arises from the sea. That's the great place of chaos for for John's audience. You know, the sea is not you know the nice beach that we go to here. It's it's a you know waves that crash against the shore. It's a place of chaos. So here arises this power out of the chaos, um, and he seems to be a, a great power. Um, and he speaks about the dragon, um, and the dragon has given him a portion of his authority. Um, and so we see this kind of, again, mimicking and aping not only the father and his sovereignty, but also the son coming as the servant of the father. And then a third beast will arise, who's a false prophet, um, who leads people, to the dragon. I mean, and so what is the devil doing here? He's, he's picturing himself as a kind of unholy trinity. This dragon who pretends to be sovereign. Uh, this, this first beast who pretends to have some kind of power over life. Um, but in, in, re- in reality is not God or the triune God in power. But is trying to ape God. Right? We, we could go through the way the, the, the first beast talks in reference to the dragon and see how he's trying to make, in a sense, a mockery of how the son talks about the father. Of how the father is truly sovereign. Um, how the father says, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Um, and how the son brings glory to his father, points people to his father. Um, you know, says, Who is like my father? And then the beast comes as who is like the beast, who can make war with him. Those are mockeries of the kinds of things that God does and says. Um, Blasphemous things, haughty things, um, mimicking God, and even mimicking kind of the offices of Christ. The dragon seeks to be king. Um, The first beast comes almost as if he's the self-sacrificing priest. You notice that he looks like he's received a a mortal wound. Um, what does it look like? It looks like someone killed him and he came back to life. See how he's kind of trying to ape the lamb who was slain. Um, he's trying to look like I—I I was slain too. I overcame. I'm just like him, only maybe even more powerful. Um, he's the self-sacrificing priest, and the second beast is like a false prophet. Um, this is the unholy trinity. Um, and I think that's, that's what's meant to be done here. It's the devil trying to pretend he's like God. Like God in his existence, like Christ in his offices. Um, these are beasts, but we know them to be agents of destruction. That's what beasts are. That's what beasts have been in the book of Revelation. That's what uh, the, the pale rider unleashed in the world. Beasts onto the world to, to kill the saints of God. They're agents of destruction, one from the sea, one from the earth. Um, like I said, this beast from the sea is from that place of chaos. Um, he comes, he's like the dragon in appearance, only he's more glorious and more blasphemous. Um, he, see, he says things that even the dragon didn't say. Um, he makes outrageous claims. Um, he's, he's in description a lot like um, what was described in Daniel 7. Here, too, is an allusion to the Old Testament. Um, you see how he mimics or apes even the four living creatures that we saw earlier. He's like a leopard and a bear and a lion. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a picture that's trying to bring together all these same kinds of things. Um, these three animals are referred to in Daniel 7, 3 through 8 as the distinct powers of the world. So in Daniel, they're the, they're the distinct powers. And here they all come together in this beast. He's saying, I have all of those distinct powers of the world at my disposal. Um, he tries to look like one who died and rose from the dead. He's an antichrist. He claims to be a divine life giver and people marvel at him. Um, that's an interesting description from John because in John's gospel, there are always people marveling at the works that Jesus did. Uh, they were not always people who believed in Jesus but they marveled at what he did. Um, And and the beast too, saying, I can get people to marvel at what I do too. Um, And that's where the people on earth are left. They marvel at the beast and he makes himself a focus of worship. Um, It's always interesting that Christ always sought to glorify his father and his father glorified his son. The beast glorifies himself. You know, he says about himself, who is like the beast. Um, Christ was always trying to give glory to his father. He never said, glorify me. Right? His, his favorite description of himself was a son of man. Even though you know, the angels testified he's a son of glory. Um, a son of David, a son of God. He still chose that simple description. Um, a son of man. He never gave glory to himself. He was always humble. Uh, the beast is outrageously proud. Um, and he causes himself to be worshipped, um, praised in outrageous terms. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Right? That's that's just a mockery of the worship of God. Um, in Exodus 15.11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That was the song God's people sing, and now the beast sings, who is like me? Who is able to make war with me? Um, It's terrible. He devotes himself to this blasphemy for 42 months, and he's even able to obtain an appearance of victory. Uh, It even seems like saints are being conquered by him. And that's why it's important to continue to remember what we've read so far in the book of the Revelation. The witnesses were conquered too. Right up until the point they stood back up on their feet raised from the dead, and then everybody was terrified. It's a temporary conquering that we're talking about here. Um, there's, there's a conquering, but it's temporary. It's, it's limited to time. Um, and we're told that every knee on earth for a time bows to the beast. Right there too is a picture of what was promised of the Lord Jesus, that every knee would bow to him, except for the saints, who are preserved by the Lamb's blood and whose names are written in the book. They are not numbered amongst those who bow down. Um, they are not numbered among those who dwell on earth. They are not of the earth, they are of heaven. Um, and that's the hope that's continually held out to us here. Um, there might be a conquering for a time, there might be those who bow the knee, but there will always be those who don't bow the knee, um, who are preserved by the Lamb as those who dwell in heaven. Um, and so, who is this beast? Who does he represent? Um, Who does he represent? Well, he represents all the false religions of this world. Many try to see a power here, like a power of the state. Um, Sometimes it's been in fashion to say this is Rome. Um, But, you know, I think this represents all false religions that have ever come, that try to redirect attention from the Lord to themselves. Um, And I think that's the right way to look at this, because this power is represented to us not as a political power, um, but as a spiritual power um, the, the things that this beast does are primarily spiritual. They're primarily worship in nature. Uh, they're a distraction from the true worship of the true God. And so I think this beast does represent false worships, uh, fal- every false religion, false worship, idolatry, and the religion that that looks away from God um, and lasts for that limited amount of time. And in the midst of this fifth vision, there is a word for the saints, right? There there is a word for the saints. We're we're cued to that when we hear, if you have an ear, let him hear. Like that's a reminder back to earlier in the book, right? When Jesus was writing to his churches. Um, And every one of those letters ended with, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Right, so this is a queuing in, like, okay, Christian, you, you should listen to what's about to be said. Um, whether we really want to hear what's about to be said is another matter, um, because it's a kind of complicated word that seems to come. Um, after that encouragement of verse 8, um, of, the, of the sustaining work of the Lamb over those who are his, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword... With the sword, he must be slain. Um, Here is a call for for the endurance and faith of the saints. Um, The churches were told at the beginning of the book to hear and receive the word as it came to them, and that's what the Christians are called to hear. Uh, That this is the word that comes to them. That the period of warfare is going to mean that some of us are going to be taken captive, and some of us are going to be killed. That's the nature of warfare. Um, you know, we, we can say don't, you know, I remember seeing a police show where at, at the end of every daily briefing the police chief would say, don't get captured out there. <laughs> you know, as if that was, you know, a real danger of policemen being captured. But, it, you know, it was kind of an indication like it's going to be a dangerous day, right? Don't get taken, don't take, taken captive out there. It's, it's a dangerous world out there. Um, and that's what we're being reminded of. Um, it, it's an allusion really to Jeremiah 15, 1 through 3. Um, you know, powerful words of, of difficult times for God's people. Uh, when God says in Jeremiah 15, 1, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to the sword, and those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. Um, it, it's it's a word that re- is a reminder of you know the fate that awaits those who are who are in exile. Um, it's the fate of those who await who are at war. Um, it's the difficulty that faces us. Um, the quotation is very much a declaration of the unswerving providence and electing purposes of God in the world. Um, an assurance that whatever comes to us comes from His fatherly hand, and so it must be good for His purposes. Um, But it's a tough word. It's a tough word, especially when you don't know whether you're one that's going into captivity or whether you don't know whether you're the one that's purposed for the sword. Um, And that's why our Lord reminds us, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Um, Here is a call for the faith and the endurance of the saints. Um, We're going to be surrounded by those who worship the beast in this world. We're going to be surrounded by those who serve false religions in this world. And it's a dangerous place to be. Um, But we will endure. We're called to endure. Um, That's the word that comes, that the saints of God are faithful and enduring, trusting in Christ in the face of every trial. It's interesting that in Greek the words call for are not there. Um, if you wanted to really translate this woodenly, it would say, here is the endurance and the faith of the saints. Um, and we insert that call for to try to make sense of the Greek sentence. Um, but but re- rendered really woodenly, it would just say, here is the endurance and faith of the saints. Um, and I think that works too, just to say as a declarative statement, this is, this is what life is. Um, but it's not just a call to endure, it's a, it's a promise that we will endure. That we should have faith because the Lord will see us through. Um, through every difficulty that we face, as we face it in every age. Um, but dad says, maybe it better to read these words as a statement and description of the saints rather than as a command to them. You are those who will endure and have faith. Here are those who endure and have faith. Um, that's an encouragement to us. Um, and so the word to the saints helps us see the first beast is a threat to the church in every age. Uh, not simply some you know, political power or person who's going to arise and be a threat to the church in some you know, age in the future. There's every age of the church who reads this, this beast is a threat to them. Uh, the false religion of the beast is a threat. Um, and that leads us to the sixth vision that where we see the beast from the earth arising. We got enough energy to go for the next beast. Complete the unholy trinity. I don't know if that's the most encouraging way to get people to listen, but yeah, that's what we're going to do. Uh, the sixth vision comes about, and this is the beast that comes out of the earth. So, Revelation thirteen eleven through eighteen tells us about the second beast. Then I saw another beast arising out of the earth. It had two horns like the lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And makes the earth and its, inhabit, and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to, to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak. And might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it caused all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Okay, see. that Now, now I've got you, right? Because now you want to know what, what 666 means. Um, this is, you know, this is the, the, the next beast that comes. And we see he's more like an apostle almost. He's a, he's a false prophet. He's a miracle worker. He's the one who tries to bring life. Um, and you can see how that's a mockery of the Holy Spirit's work. Who is, who is the true word of God in the mouth of his prophets, who truly brings things to life. Um, but here's one who just pretends to do those kinds of things. Um, the beast from the sea in many ways is a mock imitation of Jesus. Um, looking to the lamb, though speaking looking like the lamb, though speaking like the dragon. The second beast is later identified with the false prophet who comes. And so this is very much like mimicking, aping the Holy Spirit. And this beast then stands for all the false teachers who direct people to false religions. Um, We know that false religions don't work without people selling them. Um, And so we have the false religions of the world represented by the first beast and those who peddle the false religion um, represented by the second one who arise from the earth and fulfill the words of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 5, and 11, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Um, and the beast of the earth validates his false teaching with false miracles, as the enemies of God have done in the past. Right? Remember when God gave Moses miracles to work before Pharaoh, and he came in and worked miracles, and then all the magicians said, Yeah, yeah, we can do that too. You can throw down your, your stick and make a snake. I can do that too. Right? They had their own tricks of the trade that they could do as well. Uh, their own magic tricks that they could make them do. And we know that that's one of the ways that God's true religion was truly represented in the world. What, what gave, gave proof to the words that the apostles spoke was the works that they did. Right? They, they would speak in the name of the Lord and they were able to do things in the name of the Lord that validated the word that they brought. Um, so, you know, I speak to you in the name of Jesus and then somebody comes up who's lame and they, they heal him. And, you know, it's kind of almost comical when they say, why are you so interested in the fact that I healed this guy? Is it, is it, should it be surprising to you that that name that i proclaimed to you could make that man well? Um, it's almost as if, you know, The word was so powerful, why why is the work so big for you? Um, But the apostles were given able to do those things to testify to the truth of the word that they bore. They attested to the truth of the word by the power that they did. Um, And and that's, again, what, what this beast is trying to ape, trying to mimic. He's a false apostle who does false works. And that was a favorite trick of false religions, to build idols and then to make it look like the idol was talking to you. To make it look like your false god was actually saying things. Um, And saying things to people, that was was a trick that has been noted in many different kinds of false religion. You build an idol and then you make it look like the idol's talking to people. Um, And they believe that that's a true word from the god uh, that they represent. And so they're supposing to support their false word with miracles. Um, Again, trying to ape the apostles. Um, And this is just a reminder that deception has always been what the devil has been about. He's always been trying to deceive people into believing the lie rather than the truth. Um, The lie that's always a lot easier. Um, I was reading a novel not too long ago where the guy said, you know, the devil's most impressive trick really is just to tell you what you already want to hear. And I think that's true. False religions tend to to not demand the things of us that God's word demands of us and presents to us everything we'd like to hear. Um, And that's what they tend to do. They tend to deceive. Um, They deceive through idolatry. One of the worst things you can do is make an image in the Old Testament. That's what they do. They claim to give life to their images. Um, They claim to have that same power to raise the dead. Um, And the beast forces every kind of person, whether great or small, to be marked with a mark on the hand or on the forehead. Now we're, now we're getting to where you really wanted to hear. What is the mark of the beast and how do I watch out for it? If I get a credit card that has a secret code of 666, do I need to send it back? Um, am I being marked? Um, well, no, again, we got to pay close attention to the symbols here. Why mark on the hands and on the head? Um, because that's a mark of total control. Want to control what you do and what you think. Um, again, it's a mockery of what God said when he said, write my... Words on your hands and write them on your foreheads uh, so that you'll remember to think and do what I've told you to do. Um, it's, it's a mocking of that. It's marking everybody with the devil's control. Um, he's seeking to control everything you do, everything you think, everything you do with your hands. Um, again, it's a mockery of Deuteronomy 6.8. It's, it's a marking mark, a mocking mark. Um, it's late. It's a, it's a mocking mark. Um, again, God had marked his people earlier in the, in the book. Right? God had sealed his people. Remember the 144,000 that were sealed by the Lord? Um, they were marked in that way. So a lot of people have looked at this and said, I'm not really sure what this mark refers to. You know, in the ancient world, sometimes slaves were marked by their masters. Um, and maybe this is a picture of the devil enslaving the whole world. it doesn 't matter what condition you're in, you're great you're small, you're free, you're slave. you're marked as his. Uh, maybe that's what 's going on here. Maybe it's meant to carry forward that mockery that God marked his own, and now the devil's marking his own. Uh, God sealed his people now the devil is marking his people, uh, trying to claim ownership over his own um, that, that that sealing. Is a picture of. I think that that's probably even better. It's just a, a mockery of God sealing his own. Um, which which brings us then to, of course, to verse 1318. Um, my dad said about this verse, it's been more abused than almost any other verse in scripture. Um, what does 666 mean? What does this verse mean? What does all of this mean? Um, and we'll take that up next. No, I'll, <laughs> I'll do it right now. Um, <laughs> You can't sell it and then pull the rug out, right? That would just be mean. Um, so what do, we, what do we need to realize? Well, the first thing we need to realize is this is, number is not a puzzle to figure out, right? It's not some secret code that we're meant to try to unravel. Um, it makes it, the verse makes itself clear that it's not a secret code to be unraveled. Um, it says it calls for wisdom, but that it can be understood, um, it actually even tells us what it is. Um, so it's not a secret puzzle, and that would have to be the case if, you know, someone who says, well, this referred to Nero, or Napoleon, or to Hitler, or the World Wide Web, um, however you want to do this. You know. I heard, I remember hearing somebody say, well, you know, 666, like VI is the Roman numeral for, for six, and then if you put three of those together, it kind of looks like WWW, and that's the World Wide Web, and that's, you know, that's the mark of the beast, and thought, yeah, but six, like V-I-V-I-V-I is not W-W-W-I. You know, so you can try to do it anyway. That's not the point of what John's doing here. Um, it's not a puzzle to be solved by fixing the numeric values of six and trying to figure out what this is referring to. Um, there's no number in the book of Revelation where you're supposed to do that with it. Right? You're not supposed to take 1,260 and try to break it down into some kind of like, well, this is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and this is the second letter, sixth letter. Or maybe we add them all together and find something. Maybe this is David's number. Like, we're not not doing that with any other number. We're not supposed to do that with this number either. Um, No number in the book is supposed to be understood this way. Um, And its meaning is, we're told, is available to anybody who has wisdom and understanding. We're told that. Calls for wisdom, and if you, if you have understanding, you know what this is. Um, you might be saying, well, I wish I had wisdom and understanding, I don't know what this is. Um, but it, call, it calls for wisdom, but let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Okay, this calls for wisdom, and let the one who has understanding do this. Who has wisdom and understanding in the word of God? It's those who fear the Lord. Proverbs 1, 1 through 1-7 makes that very clear. Who has wisdom and understanding? It's those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord can calculate the number of this beast. They can know his number. They can know what this amounts to. They understand the significance of saying that his number is 666. It's the number of a man. Um. This is not the number the beast takes to himself, remember. This is the number that God is saying, all the saints will know him for what he is. You know his number. You know, we we kind of use that even, don't we? Say, I got that guy's number. Like I know, I know what he's up to. Um, we, we, and Lord is saying in a spiritual sense, you know his number. You've got him pegged. You know what he's all about. You know he doesn't amount more to more than 666. Uh, so what is 666? It's the number of failure. It's the number of being as big a failure as you can be. And that's what the Lord is saying. You know what the number of this beast is. Someone who arises who pretends to have power. Power that can rival God. Power that's going to unseat him in the world. Power that's going to lead the world astray and lead him to victory over the Lord. He's already failed once in heaven. And you know his number. His number. It's the number of a man. It's the number of all the people who failed before the Lord before. And how do we just know that 666 is the number of failure? Because we know that the number of seven is the number of perfection. Right? Seven cycles of seven. God writes seven letters, and God has seven seals, and he blows seven trumpets. That's the perfect number. And so, what is six? It's a failure. It's close, but no cigar. And God likes to portray the enemies of God like that. There's prophets who said, you know, they, they said, we're gonna go up to, to Zion, we're gonna take it over. But what they've actually gotten was a Hebrew word that sounds a lot like Zion, but means a heap. They said they were gonna plant a flag up in Zion. And they've planted a flag all right, but it's been in their dung heap, which was close, but no cigar. This is a number of failure. Everything God does is sevens across the board. God does everything perfectly and completely. This is the number of a man. This is the number of creation. This is the number of those opposed to God. They're failures. Okay, So why isn't their number six? Why is it 666? Because they're failures, failures, failures. Right? What happens in Scripture when you do that? You intensify it. It's why, the, it's why the, the seraphim don't just say holy. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy is something you can't say about God just once. You have to intensify it to three times. And so what is the number of the beast that all those who fear the Lord know? It's failure, failure, failure. You can try to pretend to be the triune God but it's sort of like putting on a Superman outfit doesn't make you Superman. Um, this, is, this is his number. This is what he amounts to. Um, and this calls for wisdom, but let the one who understand knows this is the number of failure. Just as everything God does is 777, everything the devil does is 666. It's failure, failure, failure. It fa- falls short of perfection and completeness. It's the number of failure, and incompleteness. the Holy Trinity is a the unholy Trinity is a failure, failure failure. Um, it's true even in the world even in the midst of the war that they're not ultimately successful, not even in the war. They're failures even in waging the war and they're certainly failures when it comes to final judgment. Um, this intensifies it and this is clearly seen by those who are faithful to the Lamb, who are given wisdom and understanding to see through the deception and to see things as they really are. Right? The world may marvel when the beast says, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? The faithful hear that and they go, are you kidding me? There's someone who's way greater than you. Who is like the Lord our God among the gods, right? We know exactly who's able to make war with you. He's actually the one who's thrown you out of heaven and is soon going to throw you out of the world. Um, And that's the encouragement that comes to us. So you see how this is not a puzzle to to be endlessly speculated on and try to figure out like, where is this mark and this means I'm not going to be able to do commerce anymore. And yeah, I mean, the world is trying to shut out those who belong to the king, but this is the ultimate number the Lord puts on them. You might oppose me, but all my people will see you for what you are, a failure, failure, failure. And there will be knees who won't bow to your false gods. Who will suffer death and captivity rather than bend the knee to the false god. And who know the truth in the midst of the air. And who always fight under the banner of the king no matter what it costs. And that's what the church is being called to. Here is endurance and faithfulness. To always know the beast for what he is. And to fight on the side of the king no matter what the beast says or does. Um, you've got miracles, the Lord's got more. You've got power, the Lord's got more. Um, you think you're strong, he's stronger. You think you have crowns, he has more. You think you have horns, you're about to feel what horns are like. Right, it's always the case that God's people see the lie for what it is. Um, and you say, that's no kind of God. And anybody with wisdom and understanding who knows the fear of the Lord knows that opposition to God is just failure, failure, failure. Um, and that's the hope that we need to live with in the midst of the war. So um, I wanted to end with 666, so, um, so I wouldn't leave you hanging until next time. But um, are there any questions before we go? We're not going to go to the 7th. You didn't miss it, so that's the good news. You didn't miss the rapture. Um, we'll, we'll get to that as we go along to the passages that might tend to talk about that. But yeah, you've noticed that there's been no promise of a rapture before the warfare comes, right? Um, there, there's no promise of being carried out of this world to not face the warfare, right? So we're still citizens of heaven even though we're on the earth. So we're not counted among those who dwell on the earth. Again, when the beast is having, having run over those who dwell on the earth, remember that doesn't include the faithful because we're not those who dwell on the earth. We're citizens of heaven. Um, so we haven't had a rapture yet. Um, in the book of the Revelation, we haven't had a, re- a reference to a rapture. So that means the warfare is for all of us in this world. The rapture comes, I believe, at the, com- the second coming of the Lord. That what Paul talks about, being caught up to the Lord in the heavens at his return. So not like a rapture that's disconnected from the final judgment. I think everything happens at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rapture that Paul refers to, being caught up to the Lord in heaven, is connected with the return of Christ. Yeah, what all happens sort of in time and history, like when when is Satan thrown down? Right. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, it's represented to us in in Revelation, which is always highly symbolic. So, trying to chart the history of that from Revelation is is difficult. Uh, Jude talks about that too in terms of some of the. Um, the book of Jude talks about some of those spiritual conflicts. Daniel talks about some of that. It's hard to know. I mean, it seems like Satan has had some kind of fall already. He comes. He's in, He enters into history in Genesis as an accuser, as a deceiver, as an opponent of God. And so, yeah, that has to have that has to have happened at some point after the creation, um, because the devil, the devil is a creature. So it's not an eternal conflict. God made. All things, so he made the angels, and at some point the devil rebels and is cast out of heaven in the sense of falling away from God. But we're not really told a lot about the nature of those things. Um, we're told some things in Scripture, but it's obviously been an area where a lot, like, lots of people like to speculate on how angels exist. And, um, you know, the, the famous, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Um, is one of those old arguments that was asked. And it was, and my dad says we kind of laugh at those arguments, but one of the things it was meant to demonstrate is, are, are angels in some way material or are they entirely spiritual? Because if they're all spiritual, then they could, a million of them could dance on the head of a pin. That wouldn't be a problem because they're all spiritual, they're not spatial. But if they're spatial, then only a certain amount of them could dance on the head of a pin. So that, that, that well, there was something behind that, but I think a lot of that is is masked to us. And that reminds us what we have been given in the word of God. We've been given everything that we need to know for doctrine, for life, and for worship. That's what the Bible is interested in telling us. And that means there are going to be questions that we'd like the Bible to answer that it's not interested in answering. Um, So, you know, questions like, who did Cain marry? Well, the Bible's not interested in answering that question for you. So you can try to speculate about it. But what God is saying to us in that is you don't need to know that for what you need to believe and how you need to live and how you need to worship. And we can kind of understand how that's true, right? That most of you have been managing to live your lives just fine, not knowing who Cain married. Now you're going to wonder about it because I brought it up. So I'm sorry for bringing it up. But what we have to recognize is the Bible is full of things like that, where we sometimes would like more information, but we're not given any more information. Um, and because God is saying, well, that, that's not necessary for you. I'm telling you everything you need to know when it comes to what you need to believe how you need to live and how you need to worship me. That's what the Bible is for. It's not an answer-all book. Um, those are the kind of questions that we can get answered when we get to heaven, I'm sure. But yeah, the whole history of angelic warfare is, not, is a kind of gray area. So there's some you know short passages that talk about it um, and talk about angelic powers. Um, so we know some things, like Michael is the big, the heavy hitter. Um, he's the one guy that nobody can really tangle with. Um, but other than that, it just, you get into, like, the Daniel, I'm sick, i got to go lie down kind of problems. Um, you know, there there are weird things like that in Daniel, where, you know, there were angels that seemed to be opposed to each other in certain places till Michael showed up after a few weeks to sort it out. So you know that, like, Michael is the heavy hitter. When he shows up, it's over. But, you know, why those two angels are fighting for that long until Michael shows up, That's the kind of stuff that, you know, you're in Daniel lie down sick territory. Um, So we just have to always come back to that. The Bible is not here to tell me everything I need to know. It's everything I need to know for what I need to believe, how I need to live, and how I need to worship. And for that job, it's completely sufficient. It tells us everything we need to know. Um, But there are tons of things we'd like to know (laughs) that the Bible doesn't tell us. And I have the disappointing task of telling you, I don't know. Um... But one day we'll find out some of these things. Is that satisfactory. It's the best I can do whether it is or not. So any other questions? All right, let's close our time with prayer. Father in heaven or Father in Heaven, we thank you for the reminder of the word that you've given to us that you preserve your church throughout history and how important that is for a a people at war to know that even though we we have to fight in this world and that there's this distinct possibility that some of us individually could be taken captive in this fight or even die in the fight, fighting under the banner of the king, we still have the ultimate hope of overcoming in his name, that because he has overcome, because he has thrown down the devil and been victorious in heaven, that certainly that victory will follow on earth. And so we thank you for that rich word that reminds us that whatever we face is not apart from your will or a sign that things are going wrong, but a reminder of, a sobering reminder of the reality of spiritual warfare in this life. And we pray that you would help us to acquit ourselves well in the fight, that as you have called us to be always in a combat zone and in a forward area, that you would help us to uh, remember your word to your people, you would help us to be on our guard that we would watch and pray so we'd not enter into temptation, and that we would faithfully serve and stand our posts until it's your good pleasure to recall us or to bring the Lord back in glory. So help help us to hold on in this fight, to be reminded of how you preserve and fight for your people, that we will not ultimately be overcome in this struggle, but will be victorious in the Lamb. So help us against the enemies we face in the week to come, bring us safely to your house to